<laughs> this is hey, Diggers number 11, season 7. And ain't no wannabes here With some not so nice advice So your writing career To be clear No punches will be pulled But the punch may be spiked How they like before they get on the mic To my left we got the mighty Mer Lafferty And if I piss her off Believe me she'll come after me And her co-host met Evan Wallace On the right Yeah she may be half as hype But she can take him in a fight So settle in folks Buckle in and boot up Time to meddle in a way To make your writer shut up It's hard work But the perk is that It's fun and exciting Facebook will still be there When you're done writing Ditch diggers Matt is still missing, and Alistair Stewart is here, this time in actual video. We screwed up the video last time, but we got him this time. And um, we got not Matt, and we have video going, so we are like so much better than we were before. So, um, hi Alistair, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm a little flummoxed, but I'm alright. Um, struggling with a little bit of self-confidence, which I usually talk about on my other show. But since Matt's not here to tell me I can't, I might talk about it on this show. Ha! That'll okay. show him. <laughs> yeah, in your face, Wallace. Yeah. That's what happens when you take vacations. You get rested, and people discuss their problems, and you come back, and everyone's happy, and it's good. Yeah. Yeah! Yeah! Better run. Yeah, so we have... Uh, Numbers Ninja is moderating, so um, that's very good. We got uh, Ansel is here, Cheryl is here, Christian's here, Rainjoy's here. Uh, I'm, I'm loving your, your journey through clock space, by the way. Yes. It makes me feel powerful with all these televisions behind me. I don't know. You know how often, how, how rare it is that I do feel powerful, so this is, this is a good little moment for me. And, and for those of you of a certain age, at some point when, when Neo comes in and, and demands to know the <laughs> truth, one or both of us will use the phrase ergo concordantly 10 or 11 times, and then uh, he'll just leave. It's fine. Don't make eye contact. It's all good. If Keanu Reeves shows up, I'm shutting down the stream, and I'm going to spend time with Keanu Reeves. I love you, Al, like a brother, but no. But it's, it's Keanu Reeves. Plus, he'll probably bring dogs. So, you know... <gasps> Keanu Reeves and dogs. I'm so happy. Um, anyway, this is Ditch Diggers. My usual co-host is Matt Wallace. Matt isn't here, and he hasn't been here for quite some time, and we need to talk to him about it. But unfortunately, when I texted him, all he said was he sent a recipe for beef stroganoff written in crayon. And I'm a little worried. But, you know, he's an amazing cook. So, um, I might try the recipe. I think you should. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen? You, you I, get I, average beef stroganoff. Yeah, I guess so. And I mean, if there's one thing which, which we all know, Matt Wallace does not produce average work. Yes, that, that's true. that beef stroganoff will know how to kill a man in 25 seconds and probably have 13 concealed knives on it. Indeed. You know, the um, <clears throat> one of my favorite episodes of Leverage is when you get to see Elliot be Matt, where they take <laughs> the mob boss's daughter's wedding, <clears throat> and Elliot takes the fact that the caterer has quit very seriously. So he takes over, 
the catering and he takes it very seriously and he's um then ends up fighting with a whisk and lemons and maybe a frying pan i can't remember i don't know if he goes that oh no there is definitely a frying pan there is a kang moment but you know he starts with a whisk and some lemons which is you know that's that's matt all over he will cook well and he'll kill a man with a lemon I believe that's the episode that also has that line about held this way, slices an onion. Held this way, kills like six Yakuza in five seconds. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, Matt, we still miss you, but uh, Alistair is here holding up your end of the show. And what is Ditch Diggers if you are new here? Ditch Diggers is a show for working writers. Um, it is... We t- I talk about craft and a lot of the emotions that go on in writing on my other show, which is called I Should Be Writing. But uh, for Ditch Stickers, we talk about the business of it. And we call it Ditch Stickers because Ditch Stickers are not allowed to get Ditch Sticker blocked. They got to go to work and they got to dig the ditches. And when you're a working creative person, you have to go to work and you have to make the stuff. Or in times of pandemic, you have to stay home and, and make the stuff. But you still got to make the stuff. You can't afford writer's block. So, welcome to Ditch Stickers. Um, what... Are you working on now that you can tell us, Alistair? I am in a very unusual position for me where I actually have my dance card full for the rest of the year and probably early next year. Wow. There's a thing I, I, I can't talk about, which I'm on deadline for, um, and I'm about 10 days out from, which is uh, critical work for a company I've done before. So uh, I've worked with before. So it's like a critical monograph on a thing. You know that thing, that if, you have, if you've ever sat down with me and, and I've done that kind of half-hour thing of, well, actually, if you look at it this way, this movie is this. It's that, but in book form. And I can tell I was getting me, though. I, thank you so much. I try really hard to not well, actually, people. Okay. Um, the, the, I can tell him I, I was enjoying it a couple of days ago when the bibliography for Chapter 1 included the King James Bible, the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, uh, and um, I believe uh, Ensis. So, you know, the, the, the okay. three pillars of modern faith, basically. Sure, totally. Um, so that's going on, and then once that's done, I have about 10,000 words of freelance role-playing stuff, which the guy who I co-created after the war with has hired me back to do, which will be really fun. And that gets to be big, wacky, cosmic stuff. That That's the, okay, so... 500,000 years ago, these civilizations ruled the galaxy, and this is what happened when they encountered the piece of evil sentient alien music. Go crazy. So I will. Okay. And then there is a thing that hasn't hit contracts yet, but which will be released once it does. Uh, I'll be writing it at the end of the year to be released early January, which is one of the last punches out of my licensed properties I would not kill but perhaps hurt to write excellent well I'm glad things are uh, busy for you um, just because this just a- occurred to me um, can you tell me how you prioritize this stuff I've been doing a lot of um, ADHD reading and trying to handle some problems that I have, and um, one of them is prioritizing. So, you know, I'm the kind of person that'll go, I need to write, but you know what? I also need to do the dishes. 
So I'll do the dishes and then I'll write. And then that like loops on over and over during the day. So if you are juggling multiple uh, things, how do you handle that? What I try and do is work off a complicated, intricately woven framework of careful scheduling and panic. Uh, and the careful scheduling comes from, I have a couple of time sensitive jobs that have to be done every week. And I try really hard to focus on those Monday through Wednesday. And is that including the Hugo nominated newsletter? That is including my Hugo nominated newsletter, the full lid, which, uh, which I was writing earlier today. Um, and once those are done, then I'll look at stuff, which is a little bit less time pressury. Uh, and. A lot of the time, oh, stealth mug, nice. Yeah, I know, it's, the, it's white, I don't understand, I'm sorry. Uh, a, a lot of the time, what will happen is I'll get to a point, I think I'm, I'm getting to that with this project, where towards the end of this week, I'll, I'll just be like, no, I need to downsize everything and just write 15,000 words of this thing and have a terrible draft handed in, which is probably what's going to happen. Um, and normally, in terms of prioritization, the thing which I'm trying to, there are two things I'm trying to teach myself how to do. We've shifted our days around really recently. We try and go out for a walk every morning now. And that's great, but it also means that we're out between about 8 and 10. And because I've got a couple of kind of lingering health things, which I'm getting over, it means I'm basically useless before noon. <laughs> so I'm trying to maneuver stuff around so that I can still get the work done. And it's working all right so far. It's going to work even better once the books on the, the book that I can't talk about is in mm-hmm. because that's taking up a big chunk of headspace at the moment. Um, the other thing which I'm trying really hard to do is plan more. Uh, those of you who've seen Shaun of the Dead, the moment where they try and imperson- where they're all about to impersonate the zombies, and they all do really good work, and then it gets to his mate Ed, and Ed just sniffs and goes, "Do it on the night." That is a very unhealthy tendency for a writer, and it's one which I'm sometimes overly fond of. Uh, during the filming of Rock and Roll, the guy Richie talked about how much he enjoyed working with Gerard Butler because, like him. Butler enjoyed the taste of his own blood. And there is that nasty little masochistic thing we all have sometimes of, oh, this is going to be really difficult. I'm going to have to do it for the next eight hours, and it's going to be fucking great. And I'm trying really hard to train myself off that this year because I like myself, and I don't deserve to have to work that hard. That's true. You don't. Um. So one thing I wanted to talk about, oh, uh, I am I am rewriting a uh, a project that's been on my desk a while, and I'm getting a lot of those feelings of everybody else has it easy, and I'm the one who's messing stuff up. With that, uh, the number of times this has been sent back to me for considerable rewrites, and my editor is very patient, very kind. The his his comments are constructive, but I'm starting to question every decision I make. And mm-hmm. um, and that's slowing you down even more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm just complaining because I don't have a question. It's it's the, the vague question of, of how do you know when you have a good idea and how do you know that you're just putting words on paper and they're terrible? Um my attitude to that's actually evolved quite quite drastically across the last couple of years. I used to be 
and this actually went as far as podcasting. I would, I would delete takes where I'd fluffed something instead of just stopping, going, "Oh, sorry, Marty," and then carrying on like I you always do now. Um, it had to be perfect, and if it wasn't perfect, obviously it didn't deserve to get written. And that is no longer something I remotely subscribe to. I, I like I tend to think of fiction especially, and I'm. I'm still relatively brand new in coming back to fiction. You know, I, I've I've got a couple of short stories and a novel under my belt. I tend to think of it now like paint, and that first draft is is the undercoat, and yet you you put it on, and there's a couple of holes, but it's basically fine. And then the next draft is you fill the holes, and then the next draft is you realise you forgot to do the the brocading on the ceiling, and what even is brocading anyway? And then you do that, and you just keep going until you're at a point where the room is the right color of slightly off-white that all paint ultimately is in the UK. And that's when the book is finished. And that's the thing which I'm actually finding with the, the book I'm getting ready to send out to agents at the moment. The draft I wrote two years ago is absolutely serviceable, apart from the vast pair of holes in it mm -hmm. one of which is there's been a very drastic change in the attitude towards law enforcement in the last two years which i have to reflect yeah because otherwise i'm, I'm part of the problem not part of the solution and the other one is i've got much better at spotting when the rich internal life of the character has stayed on my head and not in the page or not in my head not on the page i should say right um and the stuff which I'm, I'm doing on this revision is really interesting because the first draft was all the huge, big explosions and building on space on, on like huge space elevators, shifting position and saving a guy who's hit terminal velocity and you know an evil killer satellite that fires buzz swords. Seriously, it's going to be so cool. Um, and this version, the stuff which I'm mostly dropping in is here's how these two characters met 15 years ago and don't really like to talk about it. Here's the point where the private security guy kind of wins over the crew of the cargo hauler that it's set on because he cooks for family meal. And they realize that, you know, he eats like a normal human does. And it's just, it's all the little human touches. And the, the thing which I've got to be aware of as I shift now is to make sure that I don't stay there forever because I could, because that stuff is just catnip. You know, um, I'll, I'll give you an obscure example that I all but guarantee your American listen, listeners and viewers will not have seen. Track down a very old, relatively sitcom, which is probably on YouTube, called Phoenix Nights. And it is about a working men's club in a crappy northern town. And one of the pieces of connective tissue is the two bouncers on the door, Paddy and Max who have the most glorious, obtuse conversations. There's one entire episode which just opens with with, with Max and best Sean Connery movies. Paddy responding, wig or no wig? He didn't wear a wig. And then it just keeps cutting back to them and, and Paddy proving the movies that Sean Connery wore the wig in and how they're always the best ones. So it seems like Islander wig, Islander 2, the quickening wig. What was that odd one with the statue with the guns coming out of its mouth? Sardos, that's the one, wig. And just, it, it's it's moments of weird little crunchy humanity like that I, that I really love. Um, Paul Anderson 
director of the Resident Evil movies and one of genre's designated whipping boys because he makes films which aren't exactly like the video games. Uh, his first movie, which I am reasonably certain I, his mother, and perhaps he saw, uh, is a dystopian cyberpunk epic called Shopping uh, about Ram Raiders, people who would drive their cars into shops and steal stuff and drive off. It was one of the first things that Jude Law did. has an amazing soundtrack, if you can track it down, even now. And there is a beautiful non sequitur in there, which is kind of my gold standard for those moments of weird, crunchy little humanity. Whereas one character is being led away, he goes, this is a travesty, this is disgusting. I've seen L.A. Law, I know my rights. And the cop that's arrested him looks him dead in the eyes and goes, that's supposed to be funny. And he responds, I think it's more of a comedy drama. <laughs> and I couldn't see for about two minutes. I was laughing so hard. Uh, more recently, Ryan Reynolds as Pikachu sobbing his way through the Pokemon theme tune in Detective Pikachu yes. actually ended me. Like I had to watch that part of the movie again because I missed it. You know, stuff like that I love to see and I love to write, and that's what I'm trying to have controlled fun with on this run. Gotcha. Um... I want to say hi to people in chat. I have really screwed up Evil Murbot. I've tried to turn off the ones that are the worst. I apologize. Not trying to um, auto-post you guys to death, but the kids are asleep is here. And uh, Tree Lobsters, Catwood. Catwood wants to know where is Alistair, when is Alistair starting his writer therapy services for the general public? Uh, <laughs> is here. And uh, Kay Kimmy. And there is... Agreements that Detective Pikachu was quite good. It, it really is. Do you have a writer therapy service uh, plan? Um, well, I don't. I didn't until now. Leave it with me. Okay. <laughs> so uh, you posted something rather angry online yesterday, and I wanted to talk about that oh, if we can. <laughs> Because, uh, but however, the thing that you were posting about involved a defamation suit. So we know that the people involved are not above filing defamation suits. So we're not going to say any names. But uh, can shall, we... Shall we, tell you, shall we tell your listeners a story? Sure, tell Let's them. tell them a story. A few years back, Wilcon was in San Jose. And... I really like San Jose. It's a nice town and it was a nice location. And there was a local author, please pay attention to the air quotes, who decided that the best possible thing that he could do, having spent a long time espousing astoundingly far-right views, was to uh, go to Worldcon, which I believe by this point he'd spent several months claiming was a refuge for criminals and perverts of various kinds, but I may be wrong on that. Uh, pardon me, Semisonic is briefly going to be singing in the background. It's okay. half five, and that's when um, our closing... Notionally, this is when we shut down in the office. In reality, this is the point where we, we both yell, you're not the boss of me, Semisonic, until it, it gets sad and wanders off. Um, we'll hope it's not loud enough for uh, Twitch to mute us. Let me see what I can do about that one moment. Oh, no, it's fine. I can barely hear it. Cool. So anyway, this gentleman, who's a local author, um, decided to attend Worldcon, and they banned him. And they banned him because of documented far-right views. So he protested them. And 
and this got to the point where he had a group of guys in red hats with, you know, Make America Orange Again written on them, um, protesting the entire convention. And a group of Antifa folks turned up as well. And we, and by we, I mean I, at several removes, was one of a group of people who realized that something needed to be done and not done in that kind of we're going to go kick some ass but done in that kind of you have a convention full of people all of whom are skewing towards the older end of the age group and all of whom are a lot of whom are probably socially concerned and an awful lot of whom have been filled, filled, kind of filled with the same horrifying misinformation and bile that we all had to fill ourselves with between 2016 and 2020. So we had pink t-shirts made up which said we are here to help and on the afternoon of his protest we partnered up and we made sure that we were present at every location the convention was happening and we didn't do anything we just were there. We directed people. We walked folks to their cars. In fact, my afternoon was really easy. Uh, myself and my partner walked a couple of people to their car. They were feeling a bit uncomfortable as these two protests were happening around us. Um, we did a few circuits of the trading hall. At one point, via, a, uh, via the WhatsApp group we had, there was some concern that one of the people connected to the, the Red Hat faction had got in and was looking to start some trouble. And we were instrumental in tracking them down and confirming that that ID was false and there was nothing to worry about. And this all sounds really kind of NYPD blue, I know, but by tracking them down, I mean, we stood at the end of the, of the aisle they were on in the trade hall and went, nah, it's not them, they're fine. And this all sounds really harmless, doesn't it? I was there, it didn't feel harmless. It, it wasn't harmless, not at all. Um, it felt very tense. This guy circled and his little right wing. And I, there are so many words I want to say after right wing. <laughs> and you know, you know, all of them mm-hmm. is his little far right immaculately shirted chums circled the convention like a group of inept tigers for several days. And nothing happened. And I, I want to plant a flag on that because that is something he can take no credit for. Because you dig into the situation and everything that happened is very well documented. And the only reason nothing happened is pure blind luck. That's the only reason. This could so very, very easily have turned nasty. The reason it didn't is a lot of people worked very hard to make sure it didn't. And it was seen fortune favors the foolish. But I want to tell you two stories about that day, and these have both stayed with me. The last thing I did was I and a group of people walked folks out to the blood drive van. Because Wilcon has a has a blood drive van on right. site. Um, and it's a, I mean, it's, it's the living definition of altruism. It's come to the show and donate blood. I so, of course, the, the red... Floor. I don't... Yeah. Yeah. Never understood those, but that's just me. So, of course, the Red Hat faction is surrounding and protesting the blood hat van. The, the blood drive van. And by this point, there are people with megaphones yelling about child abuse and, you know, all the, the sub-Gilead bullshit nonsense that 
the media thought was the best possible thing to report seriously for four years. And I, I walked this very, very sweet Mexican dude, uh, who I'm still really good friends with, out to the van. Got him in there. Uh, the folks in there looked at me and my partners and went, thank you so much for this. And we went, it's all good. Left can I, and immediately can I made for up. a second? Um, yeah. Was this the year of the Mexicanics Initiative? Yep. Okay, so it's... it's. Classy. Yeah, so just just a little bit more backstory. Uh, the uh, artist John Picasso decided to make an initiative to help um, Mexican or Mexican-born or uh, first-generation Americans uh, get to Worldcon. And uh, a lot of people put in to raise a lot of money to buy more and more... Uh, more and more passes for people of Mexican yeah. uh, origination or descent. So there were a lot of people there. We were very proud of that. But anyway, I just, that's another thing that they got, they got handed an opportunity to come to the con and they come to the con and they get met with that. Yeah. So go on. Sorry. And I, I turned and stepped out the blood drive van and I, I came eyeball to eyeball with one of the first editors I ever worked with wearing a marker hat and he all the blood drained from his head and he looked away from me which is probably the most sensible thing he could have done in that situation and we went back to the, the main place and those of you who've been to san jose will know that the, the san i think it was the san jose library the con conference center has this massive central plaza and by this point the, the officially sanctioned demonstration was taking place which was you know it, it was not large. I, I grew up on an island 30 kilometers by 40 kilometers wide. It was very much of that kind of scale. It was 10 people on each side, all of whom carefully to keep into the shade because it's San Jose in August, so the sky is on fire. But nonetheless, um, we were asked, after some initial hostility from the convention organizers, when they realized we were just people who wanted to help, we were basically asked to just keep folks away from that central plaza between the two groups. And uh, so we lined up there, and, and we were kind of very gently turning people away. And my friend Clay Russo, who is a, was a Hugo finalist last year and this year, walks straight through the doors, up to, comes up to me, and, and, and in her full French accent goes, what the fuck is this? <laughs> And I was like, I'm sorry. She's like, I was told there were, I was told there would be protests. I was told there was a problem. I'm French. There's not even a car burning outside. What the hell is wrong with these people? And I mean, I I say that firstly because Claire's awesome and everyone everyone knows that, and secondly to to make light of the situation because that was what we had to do. We had to make light of the situation because this individual had decided that because he was mildly inconvenienced, he was going to threaten, and he would, I'm sure, debate threaten, whether or not he threatened anybody, implicitly threaten an entire convention full of people. And my response to that is the same as my response to any time people are threatened, which is, I, let's just not. And he ended up suing Wilcon mm -hmm. for defamation. And, and many other uh, things. And many, many other things. And the many other things, as I understand it, were thrown out across the course of the last couple of years. The defamation, as I understand it, has not been. 
and that was what they settled with him on and apologized to him about which went public yesterday mm-hmm. and that doesn't sit right with me at all yeah it doesn't sit right with a lot of people I, I don't think but without going into into kind of detail I do not have uh, a long raft of positive experiences with genre organizations of any stripe right um, I, I just finished what, depending on what you look at as either a five-year or a ten-year hitch with an English organization helping run their conventions for them and I won't be back um, if I was feeling salty if I was feeling Wallace levels of salty I could point out that the largest writers organization for people in my field used me as about a third of a human because I'm a non-fiction writer, a podcaster and a game writer and I don't do fiction yeah uh, and as a result, because I am of limited use to them, they are of limited use to me. My first experience as a Hugo finalist was literally having the door to the Hugo Losers Party shut in my face. I, I, I can't describe it any more boldly than that. That was literally what happened. An old lady went, we can't let anybody else in and slammed the door in front of me. My second experience of that was watching a wide variety of my colleagues point out how unfair it was that everyone who was excluded from that party were complaining. Yeah. My third experience was a three and a half hour TED talk about the onion that Robert A. Heinlein was wearing on his belt at the time. <laughs> and oh, when- your shoe goes. And when you put all of that in a line with 2018, where we showed up, and we really did show up, we did something which no one else was prepared to do, and we, I mean, I'll, I'll come out and say there were three or four trained bouncers in that group. I'm one of them. We did a really good job of ensuring a situation de-escalated, which is something which everyone needs to learn how to do mm-hmm. and i understand it was a nuisance lawsuit and i understand that eventually you pay nuisance lawsuits i mean my partner's a lawyer and, and she made the, the 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 very very smart comment last night of when you sue someone you pay twice you pay up front and you pay because you'll lose it really is one of those you know seek vengeance and you'll dig two graves situations <clears throat> but it's really difficult for me with the experience that I have to not just line this up with every other time genre organizations have either let me or more importantly in this instance, the industry down and go, great, awesome, thank you. I look forward to spending a, mo- a measurable chunk of the rest of my professional life dealing with the consequences of this. Because to be absolutely clear, that is what's going to happen. This to quote an an absolutely monumentally obscure line from Mission Impossible 3 will embolden them. Every convention, especially in the US, has to prepare for the possibility that if one of these bullies decides that they want to 
be let in to cause trouble and they're turned down. If you don't have a media strategy ready, if you don't have a means of handling folks like this ready, if you don't have a lawyer on retainer, this is going to eat three years of your life and a sizable portion of your funds. And I promise you, no one in the UK has a lawyer in, in, in con organizing that I know of has a lawyer on retainer or procedures in place to cover this kind of thing. Which is funny because uh, your libel laws are so much, uh, <clears throat> they, they support the injured party so much more than ours. The only incident I've ever encountered along similar lines to that was a few years ago, there was a UK con that I worked that had a, a litigation troll attach itself to it. And he tried the exact same thing. He tried the, I will be obnoxious, and then you will deny me entry. And they allowed him entry. <laughs> and he was like, oh, well, I have issues with this uh, guest who I will dox for no reason. And they doxed a guy, a good friend of mine, who this guy went to university with. Because that's what male fragility looks like, kids, when you're still holding a grudge 35 years later. And he showed up for a full day and then got bored and wandered off. And as a means of dodging anything he could possibly do, the organization behind that convention completely restructured in such a way that the only organization he could sue had would, from a legal point of view, have had somewhere in the region of £10 in, in holdings. So they would have just instantly gone, here is money, you win, goodbye, we're dissolving this organization now. And they would have gone on with it. And that's fine. You can do stuff like that. But I find it very difficult to believe anyone is ready to do stuff like that. Because I've been talking a really long time, I do apologize. Con conventions on both sides of the Atlantic, in my experience, are built on volunteerism. And volunteerism is great up to a point. It gets you, you know, it gets you goodwill. It gets you a skill base. It gets you people you can draw from again and again. But there comes a time, and I think that time is approaching for every single show, where you can't just have volunteers. You need standing professionals who are ready to deal with things as they come in. Because if not, your volunteers are going to get chewed up. And as it stands, your volunteers are getting ignored and overlooked. I'm wandering off. Yeah. And once that once that happens enough in one direction, no one's going to run shows. And with the graying of fandom happening in the other direction, no one's going to run shows. Yep. I don't think any of that was litigious, was it? I don't think so. We didn't say any names. And, um, Damn, I'm good. You said it's a couple of uh, inflammatory words, but again... Not against names, so I don't know. I don't think it's 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 going to be much litigious. But it's hard to say. A lot of these people, excuse me, they'll want to um, sue when you don't let them into a call for stories that is very specifically calling for a certain marginalized group to showcase their work. And... Um, I don't know if anybody's sued for that, but they've certainly complained a great deal about that. And uh, as an editor, um, I don't think I introduced Alistair quite well enough. Uh, he's also the co-owner of Escape Artists, 
which uh, is the umbrella of Escape Pod, which is the magazine I co-edit, and Pseudopod, and Podcastle, and Cast of Wonders. Um, and this is something we have to think about, which is, uh, what if someone says, my grandfather was black, and doesn't try to prove it, and says, I, I get to be in your magazine now. And you know that even if they sent you, even if you just accepted their submission and then rejected it because it was crap, they would get fussy. And yeah. it's it's a weird tightrope to walk. It's It seems to be the sociological equation that the 21st century is under, under increasing obligation to solve. How do you sidestep or detooth the angry man without yeah making without opening yourself up to victimization from the angry man you know right i mean I, I, i'm watching parks and parks and recreation for the first time uh, ever at the moment and and i just got to the episode where leslie Nope gets to say your your platform is ridiculous and men's rights are nothing and uh you know i, I did high five myself a little bit at that point yeah Wow. Yeah. And, I, I, and the thing is, I don't know what the solution is because when you dig into the roots of these folks, ultimately, a lot of the time, they're incredibly traditional. They're fans of old school science fiction, mm -hmm. and they'll, you know, they'll talk about you know rocket ships and and food pills and and togas and all of this stuff. And when you follow them far enough, then you start getting into the old school science fiction authors who quietly agree with them, and. It just, I, one, there's a lot of reasons why I've stepped away from convolunteering, but one of the biggest ones is I, I'm just not prepared to, to look the inherent contradictions in the eye anymore. I'm, I'm not prepared to, to be one of the people who tries to push things forward knowing full well that several paragons of the industry will openly mock any attempt to push things forward. And then when it's taken four years and it's become normal, we'll passionately defend it as a fandom tradition. Mm -hmm. I had my turn on the tree of woe. Someone else can have that now. Yeah. We got uh, under Pope in chat saying, I've had people complain that the submissions guidelines on my tiny little zine were racist towards white men. Oh my God. Yeah. I've heard that before. Not not specifically with Escape Pod. I've just heard that that phrase. Um, so yeah, we don't have a. I I think what I think the first step to take in all of this, and I'm and I'm being honest, and I'm trying to you know look at world from an ADD point of view and accept the ADD, ADHD, and then you know realize that the first step is not huge. The first step is keeping your eyes open and being aware that this kind of shit may happen, could happen, is likely to happen, and you can... So you don't get shocked when it does. And yeah. that's a tiny little step, but it's... It might help. Um, beyond that, if you and, are... And it, go on. And the, the, I mean, the, the, the thing which, which breaks my heart about that is it's desperately sad, you know, but I, I think you're right. I think it's something that, that has to be done because fandom 
the whole when I was growing up was always kind of Avalon. Literally, it was the place across the water where one day I would go and there would be other geeks and they would go, you have returned at last. Tell us of what you have learned on the Isle of Man. Look, here is a Star Trek mug. You know, all of that. And I've never had that. And I know, that, and I, I know there are a lot of people for whom fandom is a vital and welcoming community. Uh, and I just, I find it very sad that those folks in order to survive have to approach any potential new social interaction with okay yeah what's he gonna do you know it's just we should be better than that it's 2021 yeah um we're running a little low on time but uh can we talk about the nebulas which happened this weekend Yes, we can, which are, unlike this story, an absolutely unalloyed, really good thing. Because we need to talk about Wiswell. Yes, talk about Wiswell. John Wiswell is a colleague of both of ours, and they have, I believe John is they, um, they have been producing joyous and joy-filled short stories for literal years. Wiswell is like Xander O'Dell in that they both have this very wide-band, wide-angle lens that is extremely comfortable with any form of genre or tone, but at the same time always has this kind of fizzy invention and joy at the center of it. If I tell you that there is a Wiswell story called Tank with the exclamation mark, <laughs> which, if I remember correctly, is about Tank fandom, um, seek it out and i mean the the one that john won for open house on haunted hill is a story whose premise is hinted at in the title and i can honestly tell you oh thank you very much the kids are asleep john is he him great i can honestly tell you that it's even better than the title makes you think it is seriously i, I am over the moon for john i really really hope this is a means of escalating him to the next level because it's over to you you know I, I want a Wiswell novel. I want a Wiswell cartoon series. Well, I, I want short with, stories will get him, if he doesn't have a representation, it will get him attention. So, because I've heard I, I, that's what happens to the ones who, to the short story writers who win a, a major short story award often get attention from agents like, do you have a novel? Do you want to do a novel? That that happens a lot. Well, that's cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit about I think it's my own hang-up about the nebulas, which is, uh, it's, it's, it all kind of centers on my, um, low self-esteem, but there's a certain kind of book that is more accessible, readable, and fun than literary. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the literary ones, but I've always felt that the nebulas, uh, reward the more uh, literary ones. Which, it has been proven time and again that I'm wrong. Because uh, many, many fun-loving, accessible things have won. And I got nominated. And I definitely don't write literature. But um, I was honestly shocked when uh, 
Network Effect won Best Novel. Not because it wasn't good. I love, love Martha Wells' stuff. I love the fact that her career has, uh, was pretty much dead in the dirt and she revived it, which is, uh, we should probably get her on here to talk about that because I know oh, yeah. people whose careers might be going on a downturn and believe that there's no coming back. And Martha Wells is proof that there is because she also just announced a six-figure deal with Tor.com, I think. Um, wow, seriously, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it it was big for more. I think for more 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 murder bot books. So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm a big fan, but I really expected it to go to one of more serious books, and it didn't. And uh, I'm trying to figure out why, like where my my personal hangup comes. But uh, congratulations to Martha and Ursula, who's a good friend of mine, sometimes co-host of the show. Bob! And uh, Alistair, on his stream, um, uh, did, uh, sorry, read A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking with uh, Ursula's permission d- during your stream, Jesus, which is so Wednesday, Wednesday nights. So, yes. um Yes, yes. I, I, a wizard's guide to, to, to defensive baking is is peak Ursula in that it's incredibly funny and weird and rips your fucking heart out and shows it to you. There is one of the best discussions of PTSD I've ever seen at the end of that book. There is a action sequence which I physically couldn't get through. You see it on the stream. I just lose it. That Ursula is incredibly skilled at knowing when to drop the emotional hammer, and she tends to drop it once. Yeah. Because that's all she needs to do. Uh, also, A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking is um, a fantastically good YA novel, and is the only fantasy novel I've ever seen which features an ambulatory sourdough starter called Bob. Who canonically, I must semi-canonically, I must point out, as a result of us reading it on our stream, is the boyfriend of our sourdough starter, Chungus. Chungus has in fact cosplayed as Bob. I have photos. Yes, I know that you are building up a a, a great closet of cosplay for Chungus. So uh... we're, we're we're gonna need some small coat hangers quite quickly here. Yes, yes, um... but. Uh, you just, just just to go back to the, to your kind of li- the the literary accessibility issue. I think I think it's one of those like it's another one of those equations that that kind of fiction in general has to try and solve. I think with SF, th- at times there's more of a case of the Hugo being the one that the literary book goes to. Mm-hmm. Um. And, but I think that's yeah. also starting to... Sorry. I, I also think... Oh, I'm apparently now getting more done with Gmail. Oh, I'm back. All right. I'm back. My bad. <clears throat> um, although, again, recent years, there's been really strong evidence of that changing. Um, the two things I find really interesting, looking at the Nebula winners, the, the three things aside from, from John winning, Wizard's Guide is fantasy, YA, and comedy. And com- and comedic fantasy, as you and I know, is like trying to do close-up magic when you're not David Copperfield. 
yeah. no one cares. And for Ursula to have done such a fantastic job for it to reach this and win is an incredible indicator of a sea change in taste in, in kind of reader groups. Likewise, network effect. The Murderbot novels fascinate me. They fascinate me because I think what Martha has done is found what might be the perfect avatar for 21st century fandom. I've lost count of the amount of friends of mine who love those books deeply and passionately because they see themselves in Murderbot. Mm -hmm. And in several cases, they're folks who have social anxiety disorders. They all have different ones. Yeah. You know, which is the amazing thing. I, I have a, you know, there's a couple of friends of mine who have Asperger's who love it because Murderbot is very kind of, no, I'm doing my thing and then I'm going to do something else. I have ADHD friends who love it because he's continually annoyed at having to be taken away from the things he wants to do. And, I mean, if you wanted to go kind of really metafictional with this, I think it's unbelievably healthy that one of 21st century science fiction's first breakout franchise characters is a robot with emotional problems. Mm-hmm. Because this is an... This is the kind of stuff that no one likes to talk about. And Martha talks about it through these books in a manner which also frequently involves high-velocity punching and spaceships which have to be negotiated with. Yeah. And I, I think it's... And I don't use this phrase. Assholes. Massive assholes. Yes. Uh, and I, I think those books are a force for good. Genuinely, I think they're they're an they're a force for education and good. And I'm really happy to see them being embraced the way they have been. Yes, me too. I'm also really happy to see Tor back a truck of money up to her house to ensure that we get more of them. Exactly. Um, unfortunately, I have something I need to do at one. We reached the end of our time, Alistair, but you are uh, going to be back with us in July, I believe. Yes, uh, I am. Co-host Ditch Diggers, and I very much appreciate your help with everything. And um, My absolute pleasure. Yeah, we had done a shout-out for EA Podcasts um, in the chat, so you can Thank check you. out Alistair's uh, stream there. Do you want to say where else they can find you? Oh, yeah, there's a couple of places you can find me. Um, the, the EA stream will be Wednesday night, where we're continuing Nine Goblins, coincidentally also by Ursula. Uh, and then on Sunday, Marguerite and I are playing Haven, which is a really good two-player exploration sci-fi anime game. Uh, my, yeah, it's really sweet as well. Uh, my uh, our Hugo nominated newsletter, The Full Lid, goes live at five PM every Friday, uh, and I'm also hosting Pseudopod, which also goes live around Friday. Awesome! And uh, for you on the uh, feed, we'll be back next week with, I believe, uh, Margaret Dunlap as co-host. And Hooray! for you in the chat, uh, I'll be back with I Should Be Writing at 3 o'clock if you're around and available. You can support us at patreon.com slash mightymur. Ditch Diggers! Theme song by Devo Spice, devospice.com.